As you stand in body or spirit, we will come before God's word, quite likely as Jesus and the disciples would have, reciting what, of course, he called the great commandment and what they called in Hebrew Shema, which means listen. So if you'll follow after me in Hebrew, we'll join together then in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, as you may be aware, these are times of church and I'll be, I'll be, I'll be a couple months, 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 months will come the first, the first, the first. I've thought about making ching, ching, ching. The theme, 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 theme of Lent. And, and, and the work of Dr. Alexander Shia has helped us uh, by reminding us that the early church assumed that Matthew wrote his gospel to help uh, Jewish Christians in time of change after not only Jesus had died, but later their temple had been destroyed in Jerusalem. So we're using the gospel of Matthew over these uh, next six weeks. So uh, in full disclosure, if you want to slip out Um, uh, Dr. Shia is actually here this morning preaching the gym, or if you are able to stay at 11, uh, he'll be talking uh, about the same text as I am, uh, but probably in a way with uh, some more depth. Because there's another occasion that I want to address this morning, which is not only the occasion of change, but at 11 o'clock this morning, uh, my grandson Everett will be baptized, and so I'm really excited to look at the baptism text from uh, Matthew uh, with you. So, uh, These are the words of the Lord from the third chapter of Matthew, beginning in verse 13. At that time, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River so that John would baptize him. John tried to stop him and said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were at dinner with a a college roommate and uh, his wife, and on the occasion, they reminded me of something I had not forgotten, which was uh, not quite 40 years ago, uh, a little short of that, uh, when I came down to the Rio Grande Valley uh, and was pastoring church. It was my first full-time job after graduate school. My wife was working at the hospital full-time as an RN in labor and delivery. And uh, so with two full-time paychecks, we realized for the first time in our life, we had made it. And we had our first credit card. And we were so excited. Though, so when our friends came down to the valley to visit us, we took them to South Padre Island uh, to Louis' backyard to go to dinner. And uh, in celebration of the occasion, uh, when it came time for dinner, I pulled out my credit card and said, look, this is on me. So we had dinner. It was a wonderful dinner. The, uh, the server came back, wanted to know if it, we wanted dessert. And my roommate, knowing me very well, looked at me like, are you going to spring for this too? And I'm like, I got this. And so we ordered dessert. Wonderful evening until the very end when the server brought the bill and I proudly gave him my card. 
He looked at it and he said, I'm sorry, sir. We don't take American Express. You know, back then I thought I had the wrong credit card and that was my problem. But as I've grown through the years, I realized the problem was not credit card. The problem was the very idea that I thought being able to have a credit card made me something that I wasn't before. That it somehow identified me as somebody. And so this morning, what I want to talk about are two very important questions in life. The first question is, who are you? But equally as important is the second question, which is, how do you know who you are? And I'm indebted to the late Henry Nowen, who, reflecting on Jesus' baptism, uh, reminded us of some possibilities in our life about how we define ourselves. And he said, for uh, a lot of people, the first way you get defined is by what you have. So I am what I drive, I am the neighborhood in which I live, or I am the school that I have a diploma from on my wall, and it's whatever I have, that's what tells me and tells you that I'm somebody. Of course, you can recognize and see through that, that's a problem right away, because uh, first of all, anything you have, you could lose. And uh, secondly, if you are defined by what you have, and then you will always need more to feel like you have really become somebody. And so it leads, as you might imagine, to a life of envy of those who have what you don't have and a life of acquisition or accumulation to try to solidify your well-being and your status in the world. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work well. And the Bible knew this. And when Moses got the Ten Commandments, the first one you'll remember is, you shall have no other, anybody? God's before me. Do you remember the last one? You shall not covet. Okay, think about this. You shall not envy. You shall not try to always be trying to acquire. And what the rabbi said is you could look at the 10th one either as a test of whether you understood the first nine. That if you were still coveting, then you obviously were still having trouble only having one God. Or they looked at it as a way that if you got that one right, then the other nine would fall into place. If you won't covet, then you're more likely to do the other nine correctly. But either way you look at it, we realize that when we are envious of what other people have, uh, when we think we're defined by what we have, that that's usually a path uh, that is not going to lead us to a good place. So that's one way you can define yourself, and some people do. Other people define themselves by what they do. In other words, you are your job, or your position, or you are your title, or your accomplishments uh, in your job, which, which is great, of course, until the, the possibility, well, you could lose your job. You could be caught in a corporate downsizing. You could retire. You could move from one church to another. You know, for 24 years, with, uh, with great enthusiasm, uh, I've told people, I'm the pastor of Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. A few more weeks, I can't say that anymore. Uh, so if you define yourself by what you do, that's also kind of a, a slippery definition that's going to be hard to hold on to. So you could not, that can be taken away from you. And whereas defining yourself by what you have may lead to envy, and a sense of discontent with what you have, defining yourself by what you do uh, be, wires you in a sense or sets you up for competition because uh, you are uh, uh, defined by what you do, but what if somebody else next to you does something better? 
Uh, then you begin to get in trouble. I remember uh, the day that my first book went online, even before our first and only book, um, went online and uh, it hadn't even come out in print yet. And it was, it was weird. It was almost like the, uh, the feeling I had the first time we had a child. You know, we brought something into the world. And I was real excited until I looked at the sales and saw other pastors' books that sold a lot more. You know, you start to think of life as a zero-sum game. Well, why can't somebody else write something that's even more helpful and read by more people? Here's a way to gauge yourself. I think about your current life or uh, perhaps previously in your career. Were you and are you uh, able to celebrate when somebody else other than you gets a promotion? Are you able to celebrate when they get the promotion that you wanted? If we can't, then there's a pretty good chance we're still defining ourselves by what we do, and that becomes uh, difficult as well. So if you're not what you have and you're not what you do, there's another possibility. Some people define themselves by what other people say about them. So I'm not really somebody until other people say I'm somebody. I'm not really valuable until other people think I'm valuable. I'm not really an important person uh, unless other people think I'm important. And we define ourselves by what other people say and think about us. And, and of course, you know the problems with that right away because people are sort of fickle, right? I mean, some people can be real excited about you at one moment and then real unhappy with you. A few moments later, in my world, we call that person a spouse. Uh, in, my, in my earlier incarnations, that person could be a child. Uh, but you realize that if you put it in the hands of other people, that's a little shaky. And then the other thing is the people that you're trying to impress don't even know you. They don't know what you had to go through to get up this morning. They don't know what you have to go through on a daily basis. They can't read your heart and know the motivations for your actions that they are sitting in judgment upon or you think they're sitting in judgment upon. And uh, I remember being in a small group years ago and we were talking about this issue. And so one of the people said, well, so David, what I hear you saying is that we often live trying to impress people who are just as screwed up as we are. And that's pretty much how it goes. To place your hand, your, your identity in the hands of other people is just not a good bet. I would not place your identity in my hands. I wouldn't trust me with it. And if I'm wise, I'm not trusting you with mine. And if you do this, it leads not to envy, which uh, basing your life on what you have does, and not even to competition, which basing your life on what you do does. But I think it leads to a certain sort of anxiety. What are they thinking? What does this look like to other people? And sometimes it even goes into anger. Why didn't they appreciate that? Don't they know what I had to go through to do this, to place your life And your identity in the hands of other people is not the most secure place to put your identity. I'm reminded of the old story, you've probably heard it, about a pastor in another denomination, a call system, which is in a call system, when it's time for a new pastor, they'll interview several pastors, they'll pick one they like, the pastor comes in and he or she preaches like a trial sermon, and then then afterwards, the congregation votes on whether they want that person to become their pastor. So the story is told. 
one pastor went through this process, and sure enough, they selected him. And uh, so he's very excited at the welcome barbecue two months later when, when he arrives, and he says to the head of the search committee, he said, you don't know how good it feels to be voted on unanimously to be your new pastor. And the head of the search committee said, yeah, it was practically unanimous. And he said, what do you mean practically unanimous? He said, well, just overwhelming. Everyone just about said yes. But the pastor said, well, what was the vote? And the, and the head of the search committee said, look, it was great. It just, I cannot believe how well your sermon, went, what was the vote? Well, I thought he better tell the truth. So I told the new pastor, it was 167 in favor and two against. 167 to two, huh? Said the pastor. And that moment, as he started his new job, he wasn't pastor. He became private investigator. And after several months, almost six months, he finally figured out the two people who voted against him. And then he spent the next six months trying to get them on his team. Unfortunately, to the detriment of some other things he should have been doing. So finally, the head of the search committee, the head of the board knew they had a problem. So they had to call for a vote on whether people wanted him to remain as their pastor. And the vote was two people said yes, and 167 said no placing our hands in the lives of others. I remember the uh, late Michigan State football coach, Duffy Doherty, from the 1960s. They asked him, what's the hardest thing about being a college football coach? And he said, he said, my life is in the hands of irresponsible people. Alumni, young players, you name it. And that's, we put our lives in the hands of others if we go by popularity. There's got to be a better way. I think there is. There's a way that's better than judging and evaluating yourself and your identity by what you have or by what you do or by what other people, their people, their people, their people say, let's try this, try this, try this, try number four, number four, number four, you are, says you are. Identity that has a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and the other three, see, 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 eternity, 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 and just who does God say you are? Well, enter baptism. At the baptism of Jesus, we uh, find out in the Gospel of John that Jesus comes up to John who's baptizing and wants to be baptized. And John says, no, no, this isn't right. Like, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You baptize me. I mean, this baptism is like for repentance and sin and that kind of stuff. And Jesus said, no, no, it's necessary to do this right now to fulfill all righteousness. Well, scholars argue about what that means. One is that, well, it sets the example for all of us to be baptized. I, I think that is true. But I also think it gave God a forum, a platform, an opportunity. Because you remember when Jesus was baptized, he comes out of the water, the heavens open, and a voice speaks and says, this is my son whom I love. I am well pleased with him. And to say that in front of everybody wasn't just for the benefit of Jesus. Most experts believe that because first century people learned uh, by seeing and hearing and participating rather than by reading, they were meant to draw this analogy or this conclusion. Every time someone is baptized, God is saying that about them as well. You are my son. You are my daughter. I am pleased. And if God feels that way about you, why would you look for a second opinion? But I guess I know my problem, and that is there's so many voices that it's hard to pick out the voice of God. But when I'm, when I'm honest with myself, I realize the loudest voice that makes it hard to hear God's voice is really my own. 
I don't know if you've noticed that in your own life. Some, sometimes we're so aware of our failings and what we've done that we shouldn't have done or what we left, un, uh, our left undone, other things that we should have done correctly. And uh, we begin to see ourselves in a way that God doesn't see us. And we talk to ourselves in a way that we'd never allow anybody else to talk to ourselves. I have to tell you this in self-defense because my family will be here at 11 o'clock. But if you haven't heard the story and they pull you aside, you will. I had my uh, driver's license less than 24 hours. And so my dad let me take the car um, out and I went to get gas in the car and, and, I, and I had my very first accident and I didn't even hit a moving object. I ran into the gas pump and they for more than 45 years have never let me forget that. Well, Fortunately, I'd like to tell you that I never had another accident from that day forward, but this is church, so I can't lie. Um, But I think, unfortunately, that's kind of a metaphor for our lives. We know our wrecks. We know know our moving violations. And somehow they get magnified in our mind bigger than they are in the heart of God. And it makes it hard for me to hear God's voice saying, you're my son. And I love you, and I'm pleased with you. I think another thing is I just, I'm just so used to going to other people to have God's opinion of me confirmed. I'm so used to going to try to get a second opinion or third opinion. The late Henry Nowen used to say that God's voice was the first voice you ought to hear, and that God's love was the first love in everybody's life. And he said, the problem is oftentimes we go to second love sources to try to get first love. To try to experience the way God feels about us, we'll put that obligation or that responsibility, that onus on our spouse. Love me like God does. Or our children. Or our co-workers. Or pastors will put it on their congregations. And that is not fair to any other human being. They cannot love you the way God loves you. And so to get the first love, you have to tune in to the voice of God that says to you right now in this moment, you are my son, you are my daughter, and nothing you have done or left undone changes that reality. Did anybody get up early uh, years ago and see uh, uh, Prince William and Princess Kate get married? I don't know if you remember that. Uh, this was long before Harry and Meghan. But you, you may remember the sermon was less famous. But the sermon was given by the Bishop of London, less famous than the sermon given at Harry and Meghan's wedding. Uh, And the bishop said this in about the third paragraph of the sermon. He said, in a way, every wedding is a royal wedding because all of us are sons and daughters of God. We simply need reminders at baptisms, weddings, and every time we gather that there's a voice that speaks louder and with more authority than any other voice that will speak in our life that says, you are loved. And if we can hear that voice, I'm convinced it will make all the difference. I'm reminded of a story that the late Fred Craddock used to tell. Back in his earliest days of teaching um, seminary, he was on vacation 
And he and his wife went to Gatlinburg on vacation. And as they're sitting there trying to enjoy some peace and quiet in the mountains, uh, there's an old, uh, old man uh, dressed in overalls, kind of going from table to table, visiting and chatting with people. And, and he's thinking like, I'm on vacation. Please don't come to my table. Sure enough, the old man comes up to his table and says, says how are you? And they said, fine. Where are you from? He said, well, we're from Enid, Oklahoma. Well, what do you do there? He said, I teach homiletics thinking he'd throw the guy off. And the old man said, oh, you teach preachers. He said, well, preacher, I have got a good story for you. Mind if I pull up a chair? And he looks at his wife and his wife says, yes. And he looks at her like, how could you do that? Old man sits down and says, you know, I was, I was born a long time ago, 1870. My mother fell in love with a man that had been a union officer, but, and I was conceived, but they weren't married. And I was born, and my mother, in her shame, moved us to another small town. And in that small town, they knew that I had no father. And times I know that I would be in class, and the other kids would look at me, even in Sunday school, and I knew they were thinking, who's your father? Whose son is this? He said it was, it was embarrassing. It was hard. I went to church. Mom made me go to church. He said, but what I would do in my embarrassment and shame is I would come late but always leave early before the benediction. He said, one day we got a, a, new, a new pastor, a large man, and, um, and before the benediction, I got ready to sneak out, but he started down the aisle because his custom was to do it from the back. So as I was going, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, son, and he looked, and he looked at me, this large man, and he said, son, who's your father? Whose son are you? And he said, my heart just melted. Everyone, I'm sure, asked that question, now even the preacher. He said, but then the preacher stopped and said, well, I know who you are. said loud enough for the whole congregation to hear. He said, you're a son of God. I can see the family resemblance. And he took his hand, slapped me on the backside, and he said, now, son, get out there and claim your inheritance. And with tears in the old man's eyes, he looked at Fred and said, I want to tell you, preacher, you got to tell people that they're children of God. You got to keep telling them. It makes a difference. And he went on to the next table. And Fred looked at his wife and, and he said, do you know who that was? And she said, no, 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 it's your friend. He said, no, he looks kind of familiar. So a little bit later, the, wait, the waitress comes back, the server, and he says, do you know who that old man is, man is, man is, man She said, sure, 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 that, that's old Ben, 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 Ben. He said, starting it, starting it, starting it, starting He became fame, fame, fame as the ill, 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 Ill who served, 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 served governor of Tennessee. And he thought to himself, you got to tell him. And so, for everyone in the sound of my voice, I'm telling you, you're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. Get out there. Claim your inheritance.